from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Homeland Security says its data sharing program saved taxpayers more than $578 million in 2019. DHS Chief Privacy Officer Dina Kazanis writes that most of the agreements are with the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Citizenship and Immigration Services. NextGov reports the main goal of the agreements is stopping improper payments and automating processes the agency still does via paper. Today's day one for assessor training for the cybersecurity maturity model certification at the Defense Department. 73 assessors will train for four days. FedScoop reports the training includes studying the model, assessment standards, and methodology of CMMC. NASA can't count how many devices from contractors can connect to its network, according to the agency's inspector general. The agency's count says 1,300 employee personal devices can connect to the network. The office of the CIO at NASA says there's no, quote, authoritative source that counts how many partner or contractor devices can access the network. Department of Homeland Security has the lowest morale score among the cabinet agencies in the best places to work rankings every year for the past 10 years. The Atlantic Council has a new look at how to get the agency's morale and mission back on track. Tom Warwick is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Counterterrorism Policy. Tom, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What are the You're biggest issues that you think DHS is up against right now? Right now, DHS needs to refocus its mission. Uh, the most urgent threats to the country are very different from what they were on 9-11, uh, which was the reason the department was founded, or even as recently as 2016. Right now, DHS needs to focus first and foremost on COVID-19, being able to distribute materials, medical supplies, testing supplies, and ultimately, we hope, a vaccine. Uh, second, uh, DHS needs to uh, prioritize uh, against what Russia, China, and Iran are doing through a combination of cyber operations, uh, uh, attacks on elections infrastructure, spreading disinformation, amplifying divisive voices within the United States. All of this is aimed at weakening American power. And what we recommend is that this needs to be the priority mission to defend democracy in the United States, our internet, the way we have elections as an American affair. Uh, this needs to be DHS's second priority. And finally, over the long term, DHS has to prioritize the response to climate change or extreme weather. Uh, because those events uh, can cost American lives and severely damage uh, America's infrastructure into the billions of dollars. And preparing for those sorts of things is the kind of work that takes years, is often done out of the limelight and requires close partnership with the private sector and state and local governments. We also looked at reforming the way DHS approaches public-private partnerships because DHS doesn't command things. Instead, it leads and coordinates. Uh, and we did take a look at the morale issue, which is one of the most long-standing problems DHS has. And it actually can be broken down. There are ways to improve it. There are success stories at DHS that should be models for the rest of the department. 
Uh, and then finally, there are some basic fundamental challenges. Uh, the department is too decentralized. Uh, it doesn't get the benefit of the different kinds of, of expertise that DHS has uh, and needs to do a much better job of, of some of the basics of how it communicates to the American people and to its own workforce. You and your colleague, Caitlin Durkovich, that put this work together wrote, I think the most powerful thing in, in this entire work is if DOD's bumper sticker version of its mission is we fight and win America's wars, DHS needs to think of its mission as we lead the defense of the nation against non-military threats. What do you think causes DHS to not at least publicly focus that laser-like onto what its mission is? Uh, part of it is the, the decentralized nature of the place. Employees have a loyalty to the particular part of DHS, which it calls components, uh, and not to the department's mission as a whole. Secretaries of both parties have tried to bring the department together. The key thing that we were struck by was the fact that DHS has a role that everybody in the government really needs to understand better. So that when the president is sitting around the cabinet table, if a threat comes in, whether it's from a nation state or from a pandemic disease or, or anything else, the question is, if it's military, everyone turns to DOD. But if it's not military, people need to look to the Secretary of Homeland Security to lead the nation's defense. What turbocharges that in your view? What drives that? Or is it just the idea that the president and the president's advisors start to think the way that you just suggested they should think? Well, what catalyzed this was the evolution since 2016 of the fact that Russia, China, and Iran uh, have begun a campaign uh, that tries to go after the United States through non-military means. This is actually revolutionary, and it's something that uh, our experts across uh, the think tank space inside and outside of government have started to realize. What they're trying to do is to stay just below the level of provoking a U.S. military response, because they know they can't defeat us on the battlefield. So instead, by dividing the United States, they hope to weaken American power. This needs to be the focus of the president uh, and the president's top advisors. And they've really got to look to DHS because this kind of a defense needs to be done through what states and local governments do on elections, what the private sector does to keep cybersecurity networks intact. And this is going to take a new approach for DHS and for the nation. We have about a minute left. <clears throat> Excuse me, what about the morale issue at DHS? I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, is it possible that there are a sufficient number of jobs at DHS that are just really, really difficult and hard to do that maybe morale will never be great at that agency, Tom? Actually, that's one of the most interesting and compelling things. DHS employees, as much as they uh, uh, don't like aspects of how the place is run, are actually deeply committed to the mission. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are some very specific problems. There are only two components of DHS, TSA and CBP, uh, that do airline inspections and, and check passports, make up more than half of the workforce. If you can improve morale just at those two components, you can lift DHS out of last place. So this is a solvable problem. It takes focus and it takes money from the Congress. Tom, thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations to you and Caitlin on this work. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Up next, what's next for schedules consolidation? Straight ahead on Government Matters, paving the way for frictionless acquisition. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The General Services Administration is into the third and final phase of its multiple award schedules consolidation soon. GSA Administrator Emily Murphy told you about that plan yesterday. That conversation is available now at GovMatters.tv. Roger Waldron is president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Roger, thanks for coming back on the program. What's your takeaway from the, the plan that GSA has laid out for the schedules consolidation? You like the way it's unfolded so far? Uh, yes, I think it's been a well thought out plan. It's been uh, pretty well executed. Um, you know, not a lot of hiccups. And, you know, they're you know, phase three is an important phase because it's the opportunity where companies who have multiple scheduled contracts uh, can now work with GSA to consolidate it down to one contract and pull all their products and services together on a single contract, which would be more efficient and effective for both uh, for the companies, for customer agencies and GSA as well. And it also facilitates solution buying, um, which I think is a lot of the way GSA is trying to go these days, um, focusing on solutions for customer to customer agencies' needs. You write uh, on the Coalition for Government Procurement blog um, recently, with the advent of phase three, Federal Acquisition Service and its industry partners can begin to focus on the next steps in enhancing the FSS program, building a frictionless best value acquisition platform. What would you like to see unfold as this moves forward, Roger? Uh, I, I guess I'll put it in three different buckets. Um, number one, I think the implementation of Section 846, which is the authority GSA and civilian agencies were provided in NDA, I think 2019, uh, that allows the flexibility to award contracts without consideration of price. And really this is about enhancing competition overall by focusing on requirements, price and value at the task order level. And it's a great way to reduce barriers to entry to the federal market, uh, more access to innovation and cap I mean, uh, uh, capability innovation from the commercial sector. That's number one. A part of that would be overall pricing reform of the schedules program. Finally, it's a great framework now. It's a solutions approach, elimination of the price reduction clause, uh, reform, complete reform of the pricing policies, I think, would be the next steps to, enhance, for example, to enhance the capability to provide cloud services on the contract. And then finally, to take advantage of consolidation, which is going to be more efficient and effective, lots of training, training for GSA and uh, contracting folks on this new contract vehicle. I know they're in the process of doing that and have been working on it throughout all the phases. But also more, just as important, or more important in some ways, training for customer agencies on the new program, how it works, how they can take advantage of it, how it can be more efficient and effective for them. I asked Administrator Murphy on Sunday, what is going to happen? What is GSA going to do to make sure that we don't get schedules creep, that we wind up five years from now, ten years from now, back in the same boat that we were in before they undertook this program? Her argument was... I don't see any demand for somebody to add another schedule at some point now that we've gotten this down to one. Does that make sense to you, Roger? Or is there a possibility that something could happen and we could see schedules creep? I I agree with Emily on that. I think, you know, there's, you know, and I think, you know, moving forward uh, post-COVID-19, the efficiencies that government's going to be looking to, uh, you know, to achieve across all programs, including procurement programs, you know the you know the demand there is going to be actually to you know to continue to make the program more efficient. And I don't think efficiency is by is creating new solicitations and new contract vehicles and going back to a stove 
stovepiped approach. So I, I think Emily's right on point with that with that uh, observation. Um, back to your piece on the CGP blog, uh, you write. 870, Section 876 is the very embodiment of o OFPP Administrator Mike Wooten's vision of a frictionless procurement system. Now, Mike talked about that on this program a couple of weeks back, about the, the switch of the cap goal from the way it was before to calling it now frictionless acquisition. How do these two things tie together there in your mind, Roger? Well, there's the frictionless acquisition you know, from... Uh, uh, take from the industry perspective is really about reducing barriers to entry to the federal market and reducing administrative costs and focusing on on requirements and performance of those requirements and you know section 876 is really about reducing you know an artificial barrier to entry to the market and that's you know the negotiation of a price at a contract level that's not really relevant to task order competitions where agencies are defining requirements and seeking price and value based on their unique requirements for services. So it's it's completely consistent with the idea of frictionless acquisition. It reduces barriers. It really gets to the point, I, I like, you know, frictionless to me is more buying, less contracting, right? You know, allowing the customer agencies to, act, to actually acquire what they need in a streamlined, efficient way. And I think Section 876 is another step in that direction. We have about a minute left, Roger. What will you watch moving forward? What are the most important things for somebody to do, and who is it that needs to do them? Uh, I guess one of the things I would I think, um, you know, consistent with frictionless acquisition and, and, and the culture approach, is I, I think now more than ever, just focusing on commercial item contracting. And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, I think GSA could sit, take a step back. You know, we're all working virtually. You can connect everybody, connect your contracting core, have a day where you're just focusing on commercial item contracting, products, services, solutions, how to reduce barriers, understanding how flexible and how expansive the definition is to bring innovation and capability from the commercial market, which we're going to be need now more than ever, you know, as we come out of the pandemic. Um, that, to me, would be a great statement. Um, and then I go back again to training, uh, and that's training customer agencies on, you know, this new platform, the consolidated schedule, and how it can more effectively meet their needs. Roger Waldron, thanks very much. As always, great to see you. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. Up next, getting the talent the government needs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you can already do to build the workforce of the future. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The federal government has 19 times more mission-critical IT employees older than 50 than under 30. But there are already things agencies can do to close that gap. Margot Conrad is Director of Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service. Margot, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What were, you, what were you trying to get at with this look at the federal workforce, hiring and so on, that other folks haven't as they've looked at this issue over the years? Great. Well, thank you so much. Look, we have a lot of challenges that the federal government is facing around recruiting and hiring talent for the future. And it's particularly important today, given the pandemic and the need for agencies to be able to hire quickly to meet mission critical needs. What we really wanted to look at it with this report was to better understand what are agencies doing to build their talent pipelines for the future? And what are some of the best practices that are out there that agencies can employ and learn from each other 
you know, there are oftentimes legislative solutions proposed and some great ones that the National Commission on Military and National Public Service have come out with. But we wanted to see in this report, what are some of the things that agencies have within their own control that they can do to help address some of the challenges? And those challenges, frankly, and I know you know them well, you know, 98 days on average to uh, bring somebody on board in government, which is twice the time in the private sector, a real, you know, a move towards, there really is a move towards being more reactionary as opposed to proactive and strategic in recruitment. Um, the candidate assessment process can really be improved and internships are vastly underutilized in government. So those are some of the things that we were really hoping to look at in this report. What I thought was different about this work than most of the other works that I've seen over the years, Margot, is that this is focused on things that agencies already have at their disposal tools they can already use, and it was focused more on a cross-cutting government examination than comparing and contrasting the government and the private sector. You're right, I think, to compare the length of time it takes to bring somebody in government to the private sector, but there are pockets of success all across government, and I think it's effective that you and your colleagues at the partnership did that in this work. You put four strategies together here, four things that you think agencies should focus on, and I'd love for you to give me a thought about each one of those. The first one is strategically identify their talent needs, both for today and tomorrow, and it strikes me the challenge there, especially in a COVID environment, is you gotta fill the spots that you have now and maybe thinking on two tracks is not something that agencies historically have been good at. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So look, strategic workforce planning is absolutely critical and agencies need to be thinking about not only what they need right now in terms of talent, but the type of talent they need for the future, how their missions are going to evolve and to be strategically planning ahead. And one of the agencies that we highlight in the report that has done some really interesting work in this area is actually FBI. They've created a attrition model that enables them to look at the data directly. They look at, you know, when are people going to be likely leaving the workforce? How long does it take to hire on average? And what percentage of job offers results in new hires coming on board? Then they can get started now with their hiring process, not wait until somebody leaves and then post and hope that someone will apply with the right skill set. The next uh, item that you write about is recruiting more effectively and efficiently by being proactive, promoting brands, keeping in touch with former employees and targeting young people. A lot there, Margot, but I think that brands one is the most important because you mentioned the FBI. You can walk down the street in Washington, D.C. People are buying T-shirts that say FBI on them. Some of these government brands are very compelling, aren't they? So some agency brands really are compelling, as you said. But in large part across government, there's a lot of unevenness here. There are a lot of young people or job seekers who don't know what the myriad of different missions are in government, the type of work they can do. If you're an IT specialist or a cybersecurity expert, you might think about CIA or you might think about Department of Homeland Security, but you don't know that the Department of Energy needs your, your skill set, or you don't know, know that the Small Business Administration needs your, your skill set. So there's a lot of work agencies can do to build their brand. And we highlight TSA, for example, Another agency that does as well as NASA, helping to spotlight their mission on their on their websites, telling the stories from an employee perspective. What is the work that they're doing? How is it meaningful? Um, what are the outcomes they're achieving? And really putting a face on the work itself and their agency. The third item that you and your team are writing about, ensuring that, that the agencies 
hire the best applicants by creating a better candidate experience and using innovative techniques to identify who's most qualified, who's doing this well, because I think there are some folks in government that throw up their hands and say, USA Jobs is not that great. The way that I'm going to get candidates is rather limited, and I'm just going to have to take whoever applies. Yeah. Well, I'll say that one of the best practices here is just communicating and cultivating relationships with candidates. You know, if the, if the application process is going to take a long time, especially if there's a lengthy security clearance, it's important to really be um, making sure you're letting candidates know where they are in the hiring process and what's coming next. So for example, the, the Department of Homeland Security has been doing this, really assigning a point of contact for each candidate. And they're seeing huge returns in terms of people that are willing to stick through the process um, in the end because they really want the job and they're being cultivated and communicating with and so they feel valued and they understand what, what's happening. Margot, I'm sorry to give short shrift to your last one, which is looking inward for the next generation of talent, but we only have 30 seconds left. Who's doing that well? Look, I would just say that internships should be a primary way for agencies to build their talent pipelines for the future. And GAO and FDIC are two examples that we talk about in the report. They are doing terrific work to make the meaningful experiences and to convert their high-performing interns and really see them as a way to bring in the next generation. Margot Conrad, excellent. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.